On today's episode of The Leadership Drives. I swim in the sea of, you know, liberals, you know, wanting to do the right thing and say the right thing and being open to all kinds of beliefs and, and, and understandings of the world. And mostly those are white people. And I just tell other white people, you, you don't need to get your people. Say something. Say something. You know, like my leadership is not for people who look like me, it's for people who don't look like me. And so I need to put myself in more situations where my otherness is even more acute. Welcome to the Leadership Drives podcast. Now here's your host, Mylena Sutton. Hello, podcast family, and welcome to the Leadership Drives, the podcast where you are invited to travel with me as I endeavor to study leadership in its various forms. I want to know how and why people lead, whether on or off the clock, paid or unpaid, at home or beyond. As you probably know, so much is written about the universal aspects of leadership, but context is where the rubber meets the road. In turn, I look for leaders whose contexts are anything but textbook. My goal is to understand what leadership looks like in their unique corners of the world. Now, I know I just said that I believe that context matters greatly. This is true. What is also true is that I believe the ways in which a person's labor, whether paid or unpaid, on the clock or off the clock, at home or beyond, I believe the ways in which a person's labor supports their highest and best vision of themselves is equally, if not more so, important. The lengths to which leaders will go to connect their inner drive to what they do every single day is captivating. This nexus is so remarkable to me that I prefer to meet my podcast guests in person, whether it means a trip across the country or a simple drive up the New Jersey Turnpike. My goal is to understand the trade-offs, the choices that people make to gain alignment between their personal and professional lives and how that impacts their ability to create visions that other people can embrace. I sought out the Right Reverend Dr. Shannon McBean Brown, Bishop of the Episcopal Church of Vermont, because of what she represents to the church-going Black women of the world. Unapologetic leadership in a space that is often closed, if not hostile to women. Moreover, the right Reverend Dr. Bishop is a black woman leading a very white church in a very white state. Frankly, amid the uptick in Christian nationalism and seemingly racialized conservatism, we cannot assume that people who serve the same God actually serve the same God. Thus, I wanted to talk with someone who was navigating race and gender in the Christian church as a woman leader and as someone who executes 
her responsibilities as if everything about what she is and does is normal in her profession. In short, there is nothing new to be learned from listening to people talk about whether women can or should be leaders. Every church, from the overarching denominations to the individual houses of worship, has to consider its values and culture and what that means for their growth or decline. When organizations get clear on what they value and consciously decide how they're going to live out those values, outsiders are empowered to choose whether they want to be parts of those organizations or not. Whether we are talking about a church, a neighborhood group, or a place of employment, this reality does not change. When your values are clear and you behave so consistently that they are unmistakable, people will either align themselves with you or walk away. In this same vein, the right Reverend Dr. Bishop is clear about who she is. She stands flat-footed in her convictions, whether you agree with them or not. Even if you are stunned by some of her perspectives as I was, Frankly, there's no way you can listen to this conversation and argue that you don't understand what she means. For starters, when she said that she believes that God has sent her to be the other so that her largely homogenous congregants would be forced to become more introspective, I was caught off guard. And this was only one of many surprises that arose during our conversation. As you take this leadership drive with me, I hope you will ask yourself this question. What would our organizations be like if we normalized leaders like the Right Reverend Dr. Shannon McVean Brown, Bishop of Vermont? So I'm assuming you grew up Episcopalian mm -hmm. and then you decided to stay within the Episcopalian church. So to your question, why not choose a different denomination, another group? Why not? Because I love our, I love the way we follow Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I love the way that we have decided, the, 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 the ways that we call ourselves to some more accountability around justice. You know, we're really good at, you know, creating a vision of beloved community and, and all of those things. And, and that was really the basis of my research was that, okay, why do we stay? Mm -hmm. And should we? And, you know, the consensus was we stay because of the vision. And we know that it is an embodied, um, it has to be embodied. And for that reality, that vision to come to pass, you know, it, it takes actual people mm -hmm. to translate this, you know, these thoughts that thought and heart feelings and, and intellect um, to come to pass. And so it was a choice. Okay. So if I'm going to, you know, like really embrace that vision and live into it, that, that means that hmm, I'm likely called to see it. <laughs> To, to see to making it happen, mm -hmm. that's one thing. And so part of my understanding then became, all right, so if we're going to be the church that we dream of, we need to see more diversity, not just, you know, 
black women, but you know, any sort of marginalized group. And so I thought, oh, okay, that means, you know, leadership beyond the security of our, you know, little parishes or sometimes bigger parishes. And then at the same time, uh, you know, it's <laughs> internalized racism is a complicated thing. And so being a denomination that exists because of colonialism and imperialism, mm-hmm. you know, we have, we have some issues, you know. I noticed in my research preparing that um, one of your, I can't remember his title, but there was a person whose portrait was taken down um, mm-hmm. because he supported slavery. Mm-hmm. And um, then the, you all put out a Black Lives Matter sign. Mm-hmm. How did that come across on campus? I understand the wider community may have had one response, but what did it feel like to do that actually on campus? How did the students react, other um, people who work here? That was, it was their, they did that. The young people and their teachers, you know, and, and, and the, he's retired, he just retired this um, June. The history teacher, hey, Bishop, would it be okay if we took down, if we, if we, if we put up a Black Lives Matter over his name? At the school, would anybody Talk be upset? <laughs> anybody be upset? And I said, truthfully, I don't care if they're upset. If that's what you all came to. Um, that's good, and I support it. You know. So, it, and the, the interesting thing about that is that it's not just. So the school was doing that work, and the rest of the diocese, you know, congregations, I should say parishes, they were also engaged in a similar study. And that was where actually the school and parishes across the state came together to do that work because the head of school, he is the the chairperson of our Healing Racism Commission. And, um, you know, we decided that we would read this book that this first bishop of Vermont wrote. And he also happened to be the head of the Episcopal Church as the Civil War is coming to an end. Mm -hmm. Typically, the presiding bishop is elected. In that time in history, they weren't. It was just a matter of seniority, and it was his turn. Okay. But he was insistent on keeping the Episcopal Church together um, because he thought that slavery was a a fine institution. And um, it's... And I had talked about this man and actually, you know, in other, you know, formations, forums and other things, you know, talked about this, this presiding bishop that kept the church together and that was wrong. And I didn't want to give him a name because I was so disgusted Mm. and offended by him supporting just evil. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I didn't realize that he was the first bishop of Vermont, didn't realize you know, when I was researching the Diocese of Vermont, Bishop Diocese of Vermont, that he, he would be buried in my backyard, because <laughs> he is. Hmm. I didn't know. Wow. And and I combed every website of every parish, the diocesan website, and that didn't come to my attention until I was already here, already elected on the first ballot, which is not a typical thing. Mm-hmm. People were... Sure. Yes, she's the one. Indeed. 
I was sure I'm the one. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God, you've got a sense of humor. Because if I had known, I would have said no. Well, there's probably a reason you didn't know. You know, and mm -hmm. so I'm like, okay, I get it. You wanted me to be here to do this work. And so as we decided to study this, then um, CJ talked with one of his teachers, who's the English teacher. And um, so she made a study guide that we would use for the study, and she participated in it too. And then a couple of, uh, one of the board members, he also participated in the study. And so we had like over 80 people. And we studied this, it was like six weeks, and we started it during Advent. Because mm -hmm. I thought, well, when people are thinking about buying things for their loved ones for Christmas. Why don't we think about buying and selling people? <laughs> wow. Um, mm -hmm. And what that's done, you know, to us as a people, to us as a denomination. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so we, we studied that. And, you know, people were surprised to learn that history because it's, it is shameful. And so that dissonance of, you know, being proud of the, the fact that he established the school for girls, which is what, you know, our school was. Now it's, you know, it's, it's not for girls anymore. Um, and even in the chapel, you know, all of the, the chapel there, there's all these um, stained glass windows with women. And so that, although it was built after he was gone, you know, but it was his brainchild and people are having a hard time with the dissonance of, well, you know, he did these great things. But no, that was just, and for him to use scripture mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as a reason to accept slavery mm -hmm. is sinful. I think the meshing of God's word and slavery, not only is it troubling, but it's one of the things that makes me think, well, when I meet people, who won't accept Christianity at all because of that. As much as I really wish sometimes that their perspective wasn't as hard as it is, I get it. Right. I totally get it. Right. So um, I can see why, on the other hand, you're also struggling with the idea that, well, not only did you start an institution, but one for women in particular, how do you balance the good with the bad? How do you do that? Um, and I think if you're going to continue to talk about the progress of the church, then you certainly need to talk about those other things, the contradictions, um, because without it, I think people dismiss us as the church as a whole, right. as being disingenuous and hypocritical and all those other things. Well, I, and I also said, this is directly related to January 6th, mm -hmm. directly. Because when, you know, there are people that say, oh, well, you know, man of his time, other things like that, which I was told. Like, hmm, that doesn't make any sense. If we can't call these things out, and if we don't call out those that, that you know, <laughs> that foster and and cultivate evil, if we don't say clearly, this is evil, this is wrong, this is not Christian belief, mm -hmm. then there's these false equivalencies, and we're talking about, oh, well, it's okay to have certain um, policies in our government that, you know, or people won't even say that, but when certain <laughs> politics support 
policies that are harmful to people if followers of Jesus don't call it out for what it is. People that are, you know, are trying to figure out this world, and if Christians don't do their job, they know it. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to have anything to do with us. And if that's the kind of, you know, Christians, in quote, you know, that if that's the kind of Christians we want to be, then the decline of the church should continue because we don't, we don't deserve to exist, mm-hmm. you know. And if we were speaking up about those things, I don't think we would have, you know, gotten to <laughs> what happened. And to your point, if we don't talk about what happened in events like January 6th and some of the other things like these planes dropping off people in other parts of the country and all of these mm-hmm. things, they become normal. Right. You become numb to them and then suddenly you don't question how you went from A to Z in terms of abusing human rights, treating people very poorly, um, having more and more oppressive laws and approaches to how we deal with humankind because mm-hmm. now it's just what we do. Right. It's just but see, we wouldn't have gotten to January 6th, mm-hmm. you know, and I will, you know, it's a large claim to make, but if our church, who likes to be reasonable and the church of, you know, the established, because <laughs> that is the Episcopal Church, if she had done her work back then at the Civil War, we'd be in a different place as a country. I, I'm sure of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's not like there weren't other black people in the Episcopal Church or other people of other um, ethnicities or races in the Episcopal Church. But that was allowed mm-hmm. to overlook all these other people. I mean, in fact, one of our celebrated... Um, you know, sort of saints of the Episcopal Church is Absalom Jones, mm-hmm. who's friends with Richard Allen. And, you know, and, and that, you know, Absalom Jones was ordained by the same bishop as Hopkins mm-hmm. of Vermont. Mm-hmm. So you can't, you know, you can't say that, you know, he was a man of his time because there were actually people in, you know, the, the church, although, you know, Absalom had gone on to glory you know, before um, Hopkins had his, you know, time in in real leadership. But that's not, (laughs) you know, it's not like it was a homogenous church, like there wasn't any awareness Mm -hmm. of others. But still, it's like, when is it ever right to enslave another person? Indeed. How do you deal with what I consider, I started referring to, and I hate to say this, but it's true. I started referring to the extremely conservative, extremely white end of Christianity as evangelical extremists, Mm -hmm. Um, because I think they're weaponizing Christianity Mm -hmm. to make it something it shouldn't be. How do we push back against that? I swim in the sea of, you know, liberals, you know, wanting to do the right thing and say the right thing and being open to all kinds of beliefs and 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 understandings of the world. And mostly those are white people. And I just tell other white people, you y'all need to get your people. Say something. Say something. Because I'm saying things, but there are sides to things. They're, they're not both. There are not two sides. Mm-hmm. The, the the side of justice, politics of love, requires that we say that is not Christianity. 
first of all, that that is hatefulness, it's fear, it's, you know, powers and principalities. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, I, I sort of see it as, you know, that we, we, we see that there is progress because it is so evident. It's like the death throes, you know, of, of these, these powers and principalities, knowing that this is not, you know, our time is coming to an end. They, they will fight whatever, tooth and nail, mm -hmm. <laughs> and brazenly mm -hmm. to further, you know, these white supremacist ideas. Well, after my home state of Georgia decided that they were going to put Herschel Walker on the ballot, I'm like, I'm done. I <laughs> just quit. Um, to your point, um, that grasping at the last hiccups of life. Um, mm -hmm. Absolutely, I get it. I want to ask you a question. Since you talked about this idea of what is not Christianity, do you kind of have your own kind of defining moment of when you decided, oh, my God, um, I do believe in God. This is what makes this experience um, not only one that I think is a nice one, but it is real to me. Do you have such a defining moment? I do. Um, so I have always struggled with other people's hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. And that was like, and, and some of it was also over race, you know, in the church. My, my dad is a retired priest and um, my mother's uh, an educator and um, always one who, uh, you know, spoke her mind and she speaks her mind. She does what she wants to do. And so it wasn't like, so my dad is the priest and, you know, in a lot of situations, you know, the, the wife is, you know, the helpmate in church mm -hmm. doing that thing. She had her own life, she did her own thing, mm -hmm. you know, and so this, you know, love of the church and, and all of that. Um, but seeing how, again, you know, good meaning liberal people would sometimes challenge him about certain things or not be consistent because, you know, humans were not consistent. I get it. Mm -hmm. It's like, and a teenager is less um, tolerant. <laughs> Of those things, <laughs> definitely. It's like I'm done with church. I don't want. I, I, I'm, I'm done. I don't like it. Too much hypocrisy. I can't do it. So I, I thought, oh, I'll be Buddhist. Um, yeah. <laughs> How long were you Buddhist? <laughs> I wasn't. Okay. <laughs> I thought that I should be. You know, just the idea of it. You know, something counter to what you know. My parents are, and my parents are gracious, good parents, and you know to you wow and you know so I went off to college I mean it's, but I was still sort of like on the edge periphery you know in and out so sort, of, sort of went off to college and I realized you know that I kept talking to Jesus it's like you can't be Buddhist and talk to Jesus I was like about that. to say that doesn't match it doesn't doesn't work <laughs> and then there's some part of like being away from home and like there was this longing and and missing church really mm -hmm. um and and that understanding and so i would i visited church with a few friends you know different kinds of wasn't episcopal church mm -hmm. and realized yeah, that's not for me either but i am christian I, I i do love jesus and so and the thing that makes sense to me is being an episcopalian mm -hmm. so okay so you came back so i came back yeah so let me ask you this too. So, oh, and it was during Holy Week that I, you know, after this, you know, like, oh yeah, and then I was home on spring break, and then you know, went to church for Holy Week services, and just like, 
And a lot of people don't like Lent and Holy Week. That's my favorite time of the year. Hmm. Because really that is sort of like... The, those events, that is what, you know, sort of, you know, the early church, that's where they, they left behind being Jewish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they didn't really realize at first. Mm-hmm. But those are those things or those events that sort of that made us go a different path. Mm-hmm. And so I just, you know, I just, I love that <laughs> time of year. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. I wound up at Mother Bethel. Mm-hmm. Um, as a function of a uh, Lent commitment I made to God. Mm-hmm. I had been out of fellowship, not going to church at all for about eight, nine years. Mm-hmm. And I said, instead of finding something to give up, mm-hmm. I'm going to commit to actually going to church. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I never expected it to be there however many years later. I was, mm-hmm. and I just, to your point, I missed church. Mm-hmm. And while I do recognize that your relationship with God is a very individual thing, I still missed the individual, excuse me, the the collective. Mm-hmm. Um, so I totally get that. I totally get that. Now I'm curious. But let me back sure. up really. And, and I love that you said that. It's because, and that's also part of you know what I, as what as I preach and as I remind people about following Jesus is that yes, it's an individual endeavor. In fact, just preached about this on Sunday, but it is also at the same time communal. You cannot be. A follower of Jesus, and not be in community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that's not a that's not a thing. So don't ask me about how people go off as solitaires. That's another conversation. Um, but this is, and especially for um, Western society, with you know our emphasis on individualism, this is where we get to see that this is also a countercultural way of life. There's no way around it. That is true. And that, you know, it, to, to understand that this is not just about me, how I figure out myself, how I get my ticket to heaven, and, and you know, how I appear to be a good U.S. citizen. It's not about that. It's not, it's not about that at all. And that what we do as an individual in all the spiritual practices that lead to Jesus-centered life, all of those things are so that we can also take our place within the community to make it stronger so that we can all be the body of Christ, you know, individually and collectively in the places that we live and we're called to serve. So you can't, you can't separate it. I like that. The, I never framed it before as countercultural, mm-hmm. but I think that describes the conflict that I see between what I call American Christianity yep. and what I think God calls us to do yep. and to behave. They are two different things. That's exactly what it is. Right. And that's why I call out this, you know, that extremism and, and Christian nationalism as that's not Christianity. It really is not mm-hmm. because Jesus wasn't killed for, you know, getting along with society mm-hmm. all that he called people to do was to take their place you're in this world but not of it that's mm-hmm. a real thing mm-hmm. <laughs> of course he didn't say that but you know mm-hmm. he was calling us to be you know this this instigator of justice and love in our communities in our world and that is not that's not what the culture mm-hmm. asks us to do no and the second that we fit nicely into those things and our spiritual practices and things become, you know, rites of passage and, and just things that you do to fit into society, which is, you know, that I think that's part of the decline because it's not real. 
and that when we have lost our way in that way, that does need to decline. It needs to go. It needs to die, actually. Mm-hmm. That's not, it's not. It Christian. needs to die. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Indeed. What is the difference between what you do every day as a bishop and what you did every day as a priest? That's a good question. Um, so my attention was not as broad. Mm-hmm. It was on, you know, my parish, our community. And then also, you know, when this is sort of like, was a, a hint that, hmm, maybe there's some gifts for being a bishop because I could not stop keeping my attention from, you know, the, the small, the locals, in the same way that I talk about individuals as part of a community, I couldn't stop making those connections to the bigger picture, you know, the church as a whole and the direction that we're going, the ways that we, you know, use our, our traditions or don't use them and what they can do for us so that we can do something in society. And so, you know, it was, it was a different focus. And I remember someone, um, who said to me, and it's not that I really respect this person a whole lot, but he said, you know, that's why you're called to be a bishop, because I don't care about the larger church, mm-hmm. but you do. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I did realize that along the way, which is why I you know, considered it. And also that was a, this other piece of representation, allowing others to see there is something more and that, you know, this dream that the Episcopal Church has for itself can happen mm-hmm. and it takes more than just legislating ourselves into goodness and righteousness we it actually takes actions mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. and changed practices so but you know as a parish priest i spent a lot of time on you know developing liturgies that would help people um have an experience of themselves as as you know holy people and beloved of God with the purpose in the world. Um, and, you know, part of, you know, the, a community together. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, help try and always trying to get them to connect, you know, their life, their daily life and our life together as, as a community of faith connected to scripture and, and finding ways to apply that. Um, and I love liturgy. For me, it was a creative expression. I'm, I'm an artist, you know, by, with my undergrad degree. And so that was a way of doing, of doing that and being able to also sometimes use the arts to help people experience themselves as followers of Jesus um, and in their own, you know, reflection and understanding. But now, as a bishop, I get to do that in a much more removed way. And there are times when I, I do miss planning liturgies, but um, I, I just don't get to do that. <laughs> it's not part of my life right now. I mean, I, occasionally I do. So and I give is? my two cents. And so, you know, so right now, you know, we're, we're actually, and in both cases, you know, being a parish priest and being a bishop, um, casting a vision, Mm-hmm. But some of that come, and it comes from, it's not just, ooh, this is what, you know, Pre Shannon thinks. Oh, this is what Bishop Shannon thinks we should be doing. This is what I'm calling out for us from my experience of our life together. Mm-hmm. 
from listening, from praying, from, you know, observing, you know, the community around us. And so, you know, the communities then the, the neighborhood, maybe the state, you know, maybe the city, but now it's the state and then the larger church. So it's just, you know, on a more time on the balcony, like a way up balcony, <laughs> as opposed to a lower balcony that just gives me a smaller, you know, vision um, of what's ahead. And so that, you know, there's a lot of similarities, but also um, in both, and actually in both cases, you know, saying prophetic things okay. to the community about what I see for us and, and for what we can be called to do. So, it, I mean, it really, there's a lot of similarities, but it's, it is so different. I like the balcony reference. Yeah. Because I think, too, because of the actual title, you're probably in a position to influence not only what takes place within this church, but within, like you said, the greater community and other institutions mm -hmm. as well. Um, how was the process of becoming bishop? When you said before <clears throat> you were elected on the first round, I don't have much experience with mm -hmm. elections other than what I've learned over the last few years being a part of the AME church. Mm -hmm. um, and the stories I've heard about how interesting that process is, um, I'll just say they are interesting stories. How was that process for you? And what made you decide you were going to actually go through it? So, you know, I mentioned, you know, my doctoral study, and that was, you know, a real moment of discernment for me. Well, expensive moment of discernment, really. Hmm. And, you know, some years of, of work, because I did decide, okay, I'm going to stay in this church. Mm -hmm. And part of my call in this church and the discomfort that I felt at being so other most of the time, but that's actually my ministry. And I do think that that is the ministry also of, you know, people who are on the margins in society, that that is a big part of our ministry in the church. If we're going to live into this vision that we've, you know, set out for ourselves. The ministry of the other. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, at first, it was like a really, it was a burden. It was hard. It was, you know, and, and not that it's not anymore, but I've owned it. And so I said, okay, that that being the case, then I need to open myself for leadership beyond like the more comfortable setting of a parish with people who look like me. And that does have its own traumas of, you know, being a woman mm -hmm. <laughs> in a black church because... You know, you've got, you know. Well, since you brought <laughs> up gender, all, let's talk about it. Yeah, so you got the, the, the whole gender thing. And so, that, you know, it's it's a lot all together. But I said, okay, so this is, this is part of my call. And I don't expect others to always have to educate people. But I've said that I will in that sense that, you know, when people ask questions about, you know, how to, to to be more aware of their racism or their sexism or, or any of those things, misogyny, all of that. Um, I've decided that, yeah, I just have to deal with the, the, the annoyance of answering people's questions when, you know, they should be doing their own work. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I just tell people, no, do your own work. But so that deciding, okay, this is what I'm called to do then I was open to, so how's that going to happen? If I'm going to take larger leadership in the church, then it means I can't just be leading black folk. 
because I am a priest of this church. And so that means that I am a priest really um, to people who, you know, like my leadership is not for people who look like me. It's for people who don't look like me. And so I need to put myself in more situations where my otherness is even more acute. <laughs> well, no better place than Vermont. Right. And so from Detroit to Indianapolis, Diocese of Indianapolis, and um, and being open to that and hearing others saying, you know, you should be a bishop or, you know, have you considered? Um, and in my mind also thinking, I'm not going to be able to be a bishop if I haven't, you know, experienced some wider leadership, you know, beyond black people. Mm-hmm. Um so we'll see how that goes. And then I was in a colleague group of women, black women. And um, actually, a few of them are now bishops. And were we openly without shame? Because that's the other thing is that women, <laughs> you're not supposed to want to be that kind of leader, right? It's not proper for a woman to do that. And, then, mm-hmm. and, and there's this real thing of, you know, if you really are are holy, you're not going to want to seek to have that kind of uh, influence. And it's like, well, hmm. Yeah, so, you know, there was that, all right, um, this, you know, and as far as, like, womanist theory is concerned, we are our best selves and able to do all that we're called to be when we create our own communities of affirmation and support. And so that we can lead, and it's and our like the difference between that and feminism is that it's not about like the individual woman moving up and moving forward. For womanists, which is you know clearly a black woman of faith thing, Mm -hmm. you know our uplift is about the the uplift of our communities and the people for which you know we're responsible for, and so foremost black woman priest then that means that you know we're <laughs> our uplift is about lifting up white folks hmm. into a, a better you know fuller you know understanding of themselves as followers of Jesus who you know are able to seek justice and and, and do mercy and all of these things you know so it, it's it, it's a hard lift so there was that so there's that piece of okay I'll take that I'll own it I will do something about it. I'll live into it faithfully and be open. And so, um, you know, in the, this process of discerning, what am I called to do next? And reading the profile for Vermont, I just, you know, there was this, ooh, I- I'm drawn to this <laughs> creative, you know, scrappiness of Vermonters because I'm, you know, I also had a business as an artist and so this sort of you know creating something mm. out of nothing um is something that I'm, I'm i'm good at you know building the plane while it's being flown again something that i've done throughout my whole ministry so i thought this is you know i was really attracted to them but was a little reluctant to give myself fully to it because i thought i don't know how not to just be myself and I didn't want to be open to, you know, like, it's like, really, you know, really, it's a really, really white place. How are they going to, why would they accept me? I don't know that I want to open myself up to that. 
and the person who convened this, you know, this colleague group said, you really, you have to open yourself up completely and fully. Just be all yourself and be, go all in because I do think that that might be a place where you're called. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and of course she was right, but the, and then the process <laughs> of searches for bishops in the Episcopal Church is interesting, you know. Uh, there's this, you know, nominations. There used to be more formally someone would nominate you, but a lot of places really you have to nominate yourself. Okay. Um, but then usually it's in some conversation with others about you know, a place. I mean, I, I can't imagine, you know, nominating myself in a place and not having talked with others about their thoughts. So some discernment within community. Um, and so I did that with this colleague group of mine. Um, so you submit, you know, your own nomination, but then there are other people that also have to say, yeah, I think there's, you know, a lot of the processes will ask, is there someone else? Who else will recommend you for this and who might we talk to? So it's similar to, you know, a job application. Mm-hmm. And then there's this, you know, vetting of all the resumes and the profiles of people. And then you're invited to an interview and then another whittling down. And then there's the retreat, which, you know, like some of the um, people are like, wait, that's like those elimination um, <laughs> reality shows where you keep people off the island. Because really? Because you bring together, you know, a, a, a handful or maybe a little bit more of prospects and we're all interacting together, praying, eating together, experiencing things together um, with a search committee. And then from there they whittle down and then there's a a slate of people to be elected. And so, and it's, and I thought, you know, going into it, it's like, you don't know what it's going to be like, but I don't know of anyone that hasn't been, at one of those retreats that hasn't like developed friendships mm-hmm. with people that they were in the process with, whether they made the slate or not, even people who are on the slate with each other who are friends now mm-hmm. and and actually in a lot of cases, colleagues, you know, they've been ele- elected somewhere else. And so, and then, oh, and then after Elimination Island, um, <laughs> Holy Spirit Elimination Island. No, because it's not that bad. I would call it that, though. <laughs> but then, and then you, you go, and then there's what's called um, meet and greets or walkabouts. And so you go to the place, or pandemic, some people were on Zoom for these walkabouts. And so there's these times to talk with the candidates, and people ask questions you know, from that particular um, diocese. And then... From there, they you know they have an election. You know, people have delegates. They send a convention um, who are elected from the you know a parish, along with the priest. And so there has to be a number of um, of clergy votes and a number of lay votes in order for you to be elected. And so it was overwhelming in both orders. How did you celebrate? We we went out to dinner. Good to you. And. Um, and, it, and that whole day, it was May 18th of 2019, and a friend of mine, actually Bishop of Colorado, um, 
when she went on the retreat, I said, okay, Kim, I put your consecration date on my calendar and I'm going to be there. So she, had, you know, she wasn't even on the slate yet because there was no slate. But I told her, you're going to be the Bishop of Colorado and I can't wait to be there. And she says, nah, you know, we're still discerning. And I said, no, but I know I'm going to be there. Can't wait. I wasn't because it was my election day. Oh, gotcha. And it took a long time to finally take it off of my calendar. And a mentor who is a retired bishop, she says, you know, Shannon, you really can't be there because you need to be ready to, you know, say something to convention um, afterwards. And you can't do that if you're in the middle of a service. A little bit of a so I said, oh, okay, fine. And, you know, and they did get word, you know, as they were before they walked down the aisle, some of the people, and there were you know, people celebrated in Colorado while we were in Indianapolis and my at home and just taking it in. And they were celebrating here at convention. And um, so as a family, we went out to dinner. And, and the week before, my parents came to. Maybe it's two weeks before. How did your dad feel, given that, you know, he also was a leader in the church? Yeah, uh, he was so proud, you Good. know, and both, you know, my parents, they were just, yeah, you know, really overjoyed. And it's so funny that morning, my mother called and she says, you know, I had this dream. It was strange because, um, you know, I, you were elected on the first ballot. And, but there was, and she was talking about the number of votes and that there was, you know, basically what, what came to pass. And, and I too had this sense that, yeah, no, this is, it was the oddest feeling, I should say, during the, the meet and greet around the state, because we went to, there were like, I don't know, six stops or all over the place. And it was over like three or four days. And... I'm really introverted and shy. And so during my discernment about this, this is also why I didn't want to be a bishop because I just thought, I can't. I don't want to be, I don't want to be in anybody's election. I don't want to have to talk on the spur of the moment to people like that. This is not me. I, I like to be able to, you know, be introspective and think about things before I start, you know, talking it is not me I don't want to do this and so I had a lot of anxiety about it by the time I got here for the you know that whole meet and greet walkabouts thing I was fine Good. and and it was the oddest you know it was confirmation but the oddest feeling that I can only describe as feeling like myself more like myself than I ever have, ever, in the church, in this setting, with, you know, mostly white people, you know, but again, there, there comes in that ministry of otherness, which is part of who I am, and I just thought, hmm, interesting, okay, God, thanks that I'm feeling more like myself than ever, and that I actually feel really comfortable in this new and odd setting that I would not have expected to be just right. And so that's why election day is like, my husband doesn't like me to say this. Not, oh, that sounds cocky when you say you knew you were going to be elected. But there was just this <laughs> Holy Spirit sense of, 
this is where I'm called to be, and we are called to be together as bishop and people. We have a work to do. And one of those things, you know, relating to this ministry of otherness that I did not realize, I thought we would be working on ways of, you know, doing creative ministry and all this other stuff and encouraging creative liturgy and the congregations and race. Yeah, it's important. People were looking into it, studying it on their own. I mean, as if, I mean, it wasn't even like they had any way to apply it really. Mm -hmm. Um, And but I should say they do because, you know, as they do their own work, there are opportunities for them to do, to invite others in their communities to do this work, whether we're diverse or not. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was important to me. And one of the things that also convinced me that this is a place where I'm called. But we didn't know that this would be a priority ministry for us. And so after George Floyd was killed, murdered, um, lynched you know we realized hmm and that was you know so sort of a nudge to we need to study our history study you know bishop hopkins we need to study um bishop booth who invited the head of the eugenics movement Wow. To come and speak to convention one of the things that he that this head of, of the eugenics movement said was well, you know, because of our natural um, affinity and, and concerns, I'm like, wow, wow. So we realize this is work that we are called to lead in our communities, but we need to, to have ourselves in order before we can embark on that. And so we need to know our history. We need to know our involvement with the Abeniki people, the indigenous people of Vermont. And I have one indigenous priest priest and um, a few members, but it's, you know, all this land, this is, you know, <laughs> yeah, this is their land. Mm-hmm. And, and so what is, how did we come by this land and, and what is our relationship with them? And so we've decided, you know, after George Floyd, oh, let's, let's pay attention to these things um, so that we can actually do something um, that is based on, on our beliefs as followers of Jesus in our communities because people are struggling with these issues mm-hmm. and we think we could be useful in that way. And that is really what I do a lot of times when I'm dealing with clients. If you claim this is a value, if the people who work with you can't tell me how this value comes alive, mm-hmm. then that's not one of your lived values. It's just on the wall. Right. And so I think it is wonderful to look for how you can absolutely embody that. And I like the idea that you said, too, even if you don't have a lot of opportunities, perhaps to practice some of these values, it speaks to what you said earlier. We have to be willing to call ourselves out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we get communal. Um, you get on the same page. The word I wanted to use was um, we hold each other accountable mm-hmm. um, and we are willing to talk about. Um, the person that's in our group who has the belief system or the behavior that we know is there often Mm -hmm. instead of ignoring that and allowing that to persist. Mm -hmm. Well, part of that is being willing to call that out. Right. Indeed, indeed, indeed. And that's part, and I would say that also in the Episcopal Church, a lot of our work around, you know, racial justice, or I I just like the word justice, you know, healing racism 
that because in most settings, they're not as homogenous as as Vermont. Mm-hmm. And so, or, or even opportunities like in their communities, um, you know, they just, they have, other places have opportunities to, to, to create more diversity in their worship spaces and their ministries. So Maine and Vermont are the widest. Maine is wider than Vermont um, of our <laughs> Episcopal diocese. And so most of the, the materials, the form, you know, the formation things that are available expect that there are going to be other people of color around. And so, you know, I'm like, well, you know what, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. And it's not, and that's where we sort of like lose an opportunity when we think that that's a norm and gear all of our um, resources towards the norm of being able to converse with people that don't look like you. And then, so what, what happens in places where you don't have that sort of diversity? Um, people feel guilty for, I mean, I don't know, for what? Because, you know, they're trying to find somebody else to relate to and, or, hmm, well, there's nobody to relate to. I guess I don't need to do it. Um, So it's not, that's not the case. And so people, you know, they're just, they're having their own conversations, their own fights with each other, some of them, and and dealing with themselves, these white folks dealing with themselves together, which needs to happen. Although I will say that we do have a formation piece from the Episcopal Church called Sacred Ground, which was developed for white people to do their work mm-hmm. um, because it is, you know, it, it's an, its own distinct issue. And people, we've got lots of um, congregations in Vermont that have done that. And we started some through our Healing Racism Action Group. And um, the head of the school is actually wanting to bring that into um, a practice with people that are on staff there and other board members. And and mind you, Rock Point School is not a religious school, even though this particular curriculum is based in, you know, our, in Christianity, it's an Episcopal thing, offering. Um, but he went through it. And decided, oh, this is, it was really, really transformative, he said. And so he is inviting others and, you know, going to form another circle Mm -hmm. um, related to this school. So if you had to say that there was an issue that's right below diversity that you confront in terms of conflict and challenges, um, what else is, what's number two in your list here? think that scarcity is a, a thing that you know is I don't know it plagues Christians and I've seen it in other congregations and and as a diocese that has had to figure out what to do with decline mm-hmm. I mean the whole church does. so when you say scarcity my first thought is this notion that we believe that there's not enough resource mm-hmm. to go around. Mm-hmm. And then 
for a second, I thought we were talking about poverty. So when you say scarcity, what do you mean? Yeah, there's not enough to go around. Okay, okay. And and then that starts to impact then spiritual practices like giving. Okay. You know, the Episcopal Church actually states that the standard of giving, it's biblical, is a tithe. Mm-hmm. I've not heard much teaching about that in the Episcopal Church, even though I know that it's an actual thing. Mm-hmm. That's how I was raised, mm-hmm. um, although I've only lived in Province 1 and Province 5. Province 5 is in the Midwest, you know, Detroit, Indianapolis, or I should say Michigan, Indianapolis, Missouri, uh, Illinois, some, a few other places. And then Province 1 is New England, the lowest giving um, provinces in the Episcopal Church. Go mm-hmm. figure. Wow. Um, and so, it, so it's generosity, scarcity, and you know, this, this fear that, you know, God's not going to provide for me if I participate in that spiritual practice of giving. Wow. Um, and it's a hard thing to convince people that, you know, it's 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 not just about paying, you know, utility bills and doing the bare minimum. You know, what is the least that we need to do as opposed to what are we called to do in this place where we're living are the majority, and serving? Are the majority of the people that are um, in Vermont who you are responsible for, what's the socioeconomic status like? Do you think mostly working class, lower middle class? How would you, if you had to put it in buckets? So it's an odd mix because... There are some really impoverished areas of Vermont because of industry. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the members of the congregation are not those people. Okay. Vermont also has a high level of retired people who have, you know, wealth. And they've come here because it's a nice place to retire. Although the pandemic made housing costs really, really Mm -hmm. difficult and so people have already you know they have you know what they need in their comfort but you know and so it it is a reduced income because if you retire you have what you have but the point is that a tithe is never on what you don't have Mm -hmm. it's only on what you have Mm -hmm. so um and as a practice if that's not been a thing nobody's taught it to those who are working age Mm -hmm. um have a lot of highly educated people um, you know, professors and, and professionals like that. So it's not like we don't have resources. Wow. You know, um, it's, so it's a hard, that hard is hard thing. Because the first thing I was thinking when you start talking about teaching about tithing, um, frankly, my church, we don't talk about tithing a lot either. Mm-hmm. I know the history or my obligation because of how I grew up. Mm-hmm. But I also wonder how people are receiving that message today. And what I mean is I see so much conflict in the, in the people I know around what are leaders in the church doing with our money. Yeah. And so I see a lot of resistance around giving. Um, and if you are a mega church person with, you know, lots of notoriety, bless your heart, because they're burning you at stake. Um, so I definitely see how that can be difficult to get people to not only tithe, mm-hmm. um, but to do so gladly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's something that I just sort of stumbled into as, you know, as a priest, 
that, like I said, that was my practice, you know, that was how I was raised. And so I didn't even think about it. And, and so when I was leading my own congregation, I had a little bit of shame over that because, you know, I'm talking about it like it's an easy thing and it's not for people. I know that, Mm -hmm. but for me, it was not even something that I thought about. So is it a practice then? Mm -hmm. You know, so, you know, hmm. So what are we doing? Because I remember when I was in seminary and my husband and I filling out a, a financial aid form and they said, what is your, um, your, your giving to your, your church? I'm like, doesn't everybody tithe? I didn't know they asked that on the financial aid form. And you know, it was, it was for a seminary. And, and we were both like, huh, odd question. And, but then also that, that opened up our eyes. It's like, we, just, we have a different approach, you know, mm-hmm. as, a, as a family to money and, and that kind of thing. I mean, they, they, we never question, you know, yeah, we, all of our finances go together. It's all ours. And, you know, we, that stuff, you know, tithing goes first and we just, you know, it's, it's a, it's a part of a practice that we don't even think about. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then there are other things in that you decide to give to. But I also know that there, you know, that that is labeled a charism, that sort of generosity. And I don't want to even, I I don't even like to, like, claim it because I don't really do anything. I'm not thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So I don't want anybody to think, oh, isn't she amazing for, you know, doing, because I'm not. I don't because I don't think about it. There are some people who are more, much more intentional about that. Mm-hmm. I don't like to be like at all a standard of that and the ways that we've done that as a family. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know that as I've talked about it, wherever I've served, except for one place, <laughs> one place where the giving um, increased. I mean, like significantly mm-hmm. enough for diocesan leadership to say, how did you do that? Hmm. Yeah, how did you do that? Just talked about it. Okay. You know, just a, uh, that's the standard of giving. And um, we have these things to do. Um, and it's part. It's not like, this is not my focus. But we have all these things to do. How are we going to do them? Okay. And, and then that means we, all these things to do. And I also started talking to people about, well, what a tithe of your time look like too? Because some people will say, "How oh, will I give my time?" I said, "But you're already supposed to do that." Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like instead of uh, good point. Like, these are all things that we do, and these are this is our focus. So how are we all going to do this? And how are we going to like divvy up our gifts for the things that we're called to do? Mm-hmm. You know, okay. and, and some people, yeah, okay. Maybe you're not that good with serving a meal to someone experiencing homelessness because you just don't have, that's not in your spirit. Don't feel bad. Work on the, work on the fundraiser. Something you can For the things that, that we mm-hmm. are doing together as a church. So it's like, how are each of us fitting into this ministry? Mm-hmm. And what is your gift for that? And so, you know, the, the serving looks different for different people and helping people to put it all in perspective and just... This is this is what we do in this place, Indeed. and that is how you know that really is how I think it changed. You know, for for some people, mm-hmm. um, you know, I've heard some people thank me for bringing it up because nobody ever had, mm-hmm. and they never thought it was necessary to actually make a pledge, even. That's true. Um, and I, 
and I wasn't trying to do it in an antagonistic way. Sometimes it, I mean, I feel awkward, you know, doing that because it can be brand new to somebody who's, you know, in their 70s to hear this for the first time in church. What is she talking about? Mm-hmm. Um, I hear you. Yeah, but it just, I, and I also feel like, y'all, sorry, I have a responsibility. I actually took vows, and I'm not making a judgment about anybody else. And there's a bunch of other things that I'm not good at and things that I, you know, I'll fail at or not be great at. And, you know, when it comes to answering for them, (laughs) at least I will have tried in some of these other areas that are hard for some. I hear you. I want to flip it a little bit. So Mm -hmm. we talked about the congregation and the people. Um, I don't know how many staff members you have that report to you, Mm -hmm. but how do you think the administer the people um, who you work with to administer the organization. How do you think they describe you? By the way, how many do you have? So let's see. We have finance administrator, uh, bookkeeper, my executive assistant, and and actually two of those are in the office right now. Um, my canon to the ordinary for cultural transformation. My canon for transition ministry and my canon for um, missional vitality. And two of those canons are part-time. Okay. And, uh, and one actually lives in, <laughs> in uh, Maryland. And so she does her, although she's, she probably is here by now because she's going to be here in person. Um, how would they describe me? Well, I, I, other people have told me, you know, like, because we've had some consultants coming in, because I don't know if you know, this convention is, is going to be a really big deal um, because we haven't been together in person for our annual convention since 2019, and I had not been bishop for even a month. Okay. And the others were on Zoom, you know, we did business. And then we had some formation time on a separate day that was last year. The year before, we didn't do all of that. Um, But so we are in July of 2021, I sent a letter to the diocese saying that, you know, we are facing a financial cliff because we had invited in a consultant to look at the at our finances and also there are other structural governance things that were a concern to me. And so I said, so this is what we're going to do to address this financial cliff. Cause I do think that we are called to serve in this place still. Um, you know, we're going to buy ourselves some time, you know, staff wise and not, we don't have a receptionist as, as you noticed. And actually there used to be a desk out there and all kinds, you know, took it out last month. Um, and I appointed a task force for hope revitalization, innovation, vision, and efficiency to help map out a new governance and also to get a hold of the, the financial situation. Mm-hmm. And so I had to tell all that backstory to tell you that, you know, consultants have been in and, you know, actually, uh, so Monday we switch over to the payroll system. Uh, and next week and, and this week, a lot of other um, 
financial accounting systems have, you know, been transferred into something else that has helped us, you know, to get a better hold of things and to have a clear picture and being really transparent about um, our finances and then having a governance structure that actually works Mm -hmm. for us and keeps us accountable was something that I've insisted on. And so this is, that's been a big, a big undertaking. Mm and has taken most of my attention for the last, I realized that this was an issue in the summer of 2020. So began that work then. So now we're voting on it on Thursday next week. No, Wednesday next week. So consultants have said, oh, your staff thinks that you're really smart and um, visionary. Mm -hmm. And uh, some, (laughs) it's like, (laughs) <laughs> they don't want to disappoint me mm-hmm. um, and know that I have some high standards and, you know, like big, bigger, you know, just different thinking. I, I don't have the same thinking as others about things. Um, down to earth and transparent. And I think people often experience me as encouraging even though I'm also challenging at the same time Uh, although people that don't want to hear anything about change will sometimes label me as distant Hmm. and unapproachable interesting I heard that more when I was a priest so you know and I don't think of myself as distant or unapproachable um and I don't, even, I don't even think that that's, you know, like me showing my introversion or shyness because people often think that I'm extroverted. You perform. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, you know, that's part of the call. Mm-hmm. And I've actually gotten out of practice, you know, being in person, like really, really in person is so different than being on Zoom. Mm-hmm. I mean, that has its own level of you know, taxing, you know, labor and being in person and I, which I love and I love actually being able to be with my people and I'm so excited. I haven't been able to sleep really well the last like week because I'm just hyped about being in person tomorrow with people for convention for the first time in too long. I mean, a larger group. Yes, I've been in person in individual congregations Mm -hmm. um, but I've, I've gotten, yeah, I've gotten out of practice for the Sunday thing. I feel like I'm a new, like when I was a new priest and, and my baby girl was a little girl. She was like, two. And I would fall asleep after church because it's just like, oh, I was so drained. <laughs> I told uh, someone last week, I said, what I miss, I call it COVID AME. Mm-hmm. From watching church from home. I could eat in the sanctuary. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. Mother Bethel, um, they are serious about that. No snacks, no food, because it's a historic building. Yeah. And if anything goes wrong, um, our church facilities manager will let you know how much headache that has cost her. Yes. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Let me ask you, since you said you've been here shortly before the pandemic, you've been working really hard to manage the finances of the church, then you didn't expect race to be such um, in the forefront as much as it is. How are you making sure that you don't burn out? What are you doing to take care of you? Well, one of the things that I 
Thank you. Good question. Because <laughs> I realized partway through, and as we were, and particularly when we were studying that book, the biblical, ecclesiastical, and theological case for slavery. And I didn't lead any of the discussions, but I was always, you know, I had always a, a, a place on the um, agenda for the, the evening. And usually it was with a prayer and giving a little bit of reflections about where I am right now in the reading or, you know, what occurred to me. And, and also in some other meetings with other leaders, I had to, you know, I had to admit and tell people, you know, I am used to being the only and the first, which is part of life and expected that that would be part of my life here. I did not know how much of a toll it would take on me. Mm-hmm. You know, psyche, my psyche, physically, because it, then, you know, it, it's, it's a whole body experience. Mm-hmm. And so I, like, as I was reading that book and, and, you know, there were people that resisted wanting to read it. Mm-hmm. And, and I had to, and I actually said in one of the sessions, no, y'all, y'all need to read this. If anybody should get an exempt, exemption, it should be me. Because, you know, he's in my backyard. And I, I just have a visceral reaction to some of the things that he's talking about. Because that is an experience in my blood. Mm-hmm. And, and... You know, I've you know, done DNA research and stuff, and then looking at <clears throat> looking through, through these family history things on Ancestry.com, and I kept coming up. You know, these these records kept coming up for you know, these these white people. I'm like, wait, hey, who are these people? These are not my. And I realized, and I found this one history: my grandmother's grandfather talking about his father, who was his owner, mm. and how he sold him. Right before the civil, you know, the civil war was not over yet. Before, sold him and his mother, and you know, it's like this is absolutely just like this internal wrestling, you know, sort of a, a jihad, as it were, because this part of me that hated the other part. You, you get what I'm saying? I do I do? And it just. That's that's something to reconcile within oneself, mm-hmm. and 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 also why healing racism is not a black person's problem, it's not an indigenous person's problem, it's not a you know Asian person's problem, but it's you know, it, it is everyone's problem, and those that you know perpetrate racist ideals and what you know in the, the various ways that they do. They need healing too, because that's not normal. It's not human mm-hmm. to act in that way. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of something I heard Toni Morrison say. Yeah, um, what yeah. was it? And um, it was on an interview. I can't remember the gentleman's name who was interviewing her, but he's a white guy. And she talked about how racism is white people's problems. That's how she said it flatly. She said because we have built a society that we've a that it has manifested this way. She says. If you can only be tall, 
because you've not, because I'm on my knees, then mm-hmm. how tall are you really? Mm-hmm. And so the way she described it, she's like, yeah, you, you've got to figure out who are you without racism? Mm-hmm. If you don't have the the benefit of whiteness, are you really that tall? Right. And uh, I definitely um, can just connect that to what you're saying. There's a diminishing of of self and mm-hmm. spirit and everything and, and you know and funny because you know all the things that we watched during the pandemic or some people didn't watch but you know in my household my daughter was still home it wasn't in college yet and for some reason we were on this uh, Harry Potter kick and so you know this this one story about the Horcrux so this you know the Voldemort the, the, the horrible one and knowing that there was this mixture of him in Harry Potter and so he was having this internal struggle too of this you know good and evil that resided in him as a person and just like is dealing with him like oh oh yikes and so just knowing that I I have to deal with that kind of trauma Mm -hmm. um that's historic and then also you know like microaggressions that you know I experience and sometimes it's not even micro Mm -hmm. you know being the person in charge is one thing until i say you know we're going to really change Mm -hmm. so you know like changing the culture around how we you know deal with our money for example you know why is a black woman you know messing with the money Mm -hmm. You're supposed to just go and smile and preach a little sermon and make Eucharist on Sunday and also confirm a few people. That that's that's it. What what else are you I mean, what are you talking about? <laughs> I want to bring you back though. You still haven't told me how you take care of So you. how I take care of myself. Well part of that though was being really transparent. This is making me tired. It's acknowledging that. Mm-hmm. And telling people, this is work. So it takes time. And I'm trying to be mindful of boundaries for myself, trying to take Sabbath, um, realizing that I have to actually, you know, if we're reading things like this, like during while we were reading that book, I had to have a day of not messing with anything but that book and just... Ugh, I hear you. So I can't, I, I, I'm not completely available all the time because I have to, I have to metabolize that and not let it eat me up. I think so many black women in particular who do um, diversity related work would benefit from hearing just what you said. I don't think people recognize how much of a physical, mental, and emotional toll it takes to go into spaces on a regular basis to balance this thing where on one hand you're trying to get people to see the way that cultures are set up to marginalize people. And then there's a part of you that recognizes that you're also making it clear that as a woman, a black woman, you deserve to be seen and not just you, but your community, your experiences. And that can be hard. Yeah. That is hard. It is hard. And, and, hard. and there's also this other piece of it that, you know, especially when you're in circles with liberal white folks or other liberal folks, we, you know, they, you know, diversity and all these things are 
um, sometimes intellectual practices and hard to like actually embody. And, you know, we're invited into spaces and I call it sex work because, you know, what does a sex worker do? But, you know, their body is used to make someone feel good. Mm. Mm. And so we come into these spaces and it is our body that makes them feel good. Mm. It's not a sexual act, but I can't but it is sex work in the sense that because you're because <laughs> gender and race, black woman. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm here. Oh, look at me. Black woman is here. We, you know, I invited her to, to, to do this thing or to be this person, and the work is done. Mm-hmm. And it's not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, I have to think, am I up for that mm-hmm. in this situation? Mm, I don't know if I have the, the stores in me to, to take that right now, or this is what I'm there for. How am I going to talk about it? Am I going to talk about it? It takes a certain, you know, amount of energy to speak to those things. And so, um, you know, I'm a little, I think a little more discerning about allowing myself to be in certain situations now because I do have to do that here. Mm -hmm. And then there's a certain level of being a public person. Um, I don't, I mean, I can't just go places here and not expect someone to recognize me. I get that. Mm-hmm. You know, people that don't know me. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're the bishop. Mm-hmm. Or you are a bishop. They're not even Christian. <laughs> Masked in a, in a place. <laughs> I don't oh. care about that mask. That's the bishop. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And it's like, oh. Mm-hmm. So I can't cuss in public. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Good God forbid! <laughs> I don't want to embarrass people because um, you know, I—I'll admit I am a cuss. That's how also how I deal with it. You know, just let it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's—it is, yeah, it is tiring. And you know, sometimes how I take care of myself is you know, like if I'm in a big meeting with a bunch of people and knowing that I'm presenting, you know, I'm asking us for a cultural change. Um, I will have talked to people in advance and like, who are my allies and being really clear with them about sort of how I'm experiencing, you know, a particular moment and asking them. So when we're in this meeting, I can only manage, you know, being an anxious presence and the things that I have to say and people being disrespectful and dismissive or whatever else. I won't be able to speak to it, number one, because I won't even be able to pay attention to it because if I do, I can't do what I'm supposed to be doing. So will you, you know, pay attention to those things? I don't necessarily ask people to say something about it, but also I want to know, you know, I ask people that have, you know, a handful of people, what did you see? What did you observe in this particular situation that we need to be proactive about or that we need to pay attention to as we're trying to make this change. Um, Because I just know that I only have so much energy to spread Mm -hmm. and I need to give it all to a particular thing, you know. So asking for that kind of support. And, you know, and that took some time to be able to figure out who who are those people that I can call on for that kind of thing. And, um, 
Yeah, I mean, and it's not been, I mean, I haven't, like, had a lot of overt, you know, things happen. Mm -hmm. um, we did have an incidence of someone calling and leaving a really, you know, scary message uh, on the phone. Wow. And so there's been, and there's been some security things, and so we, you know, just, and, and telling people in the diocese, oh, yeah. Y'all elected a black woman, so if you elected a white man, no problem. You wouldn't have to deal with some of these things. So security is a different issue, you know. But, oh, Vermont's safe. Oh, you don't have to lock doors. You don't have to this. You don't have to that. Maybe um, you don't. That's you. That's right. Mm -hmm. I'm not you. Mm -hmm. And so now we have these new things to be concerned about. And people... And that was also the other interesting thing with George Floyd is that, you know, people felt a certain level of comfort with me that they could say, oh, wow, this is real. And then they, you know, say it and they're like, oh, sorry. Yeah, we knew it was real, but it, it feels different now because we actually have a relationship with you. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, be the only one that the relationship is with is yeah it's a little awkward sometimes but um part of the reality so again that takes you know i just i try to be easy on myself when i'm feeling like there's something more i should be doing and i just know i just don't have the reserves right now that reminds me and i think this is a great segue to wrapping up because i know you have a ton of other things to do there's a book called the four agreements Mm. And one of the agreements is recognizing that you are always doing your to always do your best, but sometimes your best is different. Mm -hmm. And when your reserves are different, when your energy level is different, when your health is different, your best is different. And to be kind to yourself, mm -hmm. indeed, Bishop, I have appreciated the time. Mm -hmm. I can't wait to go back and tell my friends, "Oh my God, I actually got her!" <laughs> um, it has been a pleasure. I. I must admit, I totally did not think you would be as warm and as friendly as you've been. <laughs> I feel like I've hit the jackpot today. So thank you so, so much. Thank you. Indeed. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Leadership Drives podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe, share with your family and friends, and be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Leadership Drives. Leadership Drives.